Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. This is Rachel Edelman, professor of Hebrew Bible at Hebrew College in Newton, and I've invited James Diamond to speak about his new book called Jewish Theology Unbound. James is, may I call you Jim? Would that be okay? Yeah, so Jim, um, Professor Jim Diamond, James Diamond, it holds the Joseph and Wolf Leibowitz Chair in Jewish Studies at the University of Waterloo. He earned a law degree from Osgoode, the University of Toronto, and a Master's in Law International Legal Studies at New York University School of Law. And while practicing civil litigation, he earned an MA and PhD in Medieval Jewish Thought from the University of Toronto. And I believe you wrote your doctorate under M- Professor Emil Fackenheim. Uh, no, no. Um, I, actually, I, I st- we can talk about my experience with Fackenheim. But that uh, I started uh, philosophy studies with Emil Fackenheim, but uh, my PhD was ultimately under David Novak. Oh, no, yeah. Okay, David Novak. Okay, great. Um, so he was the international director of Friedberg, the Friedberg Geniza Project. And his books include Maimonides and the Hermeneutics of Concealment and Converts, Heretics, and Lepers, Maimonides and the Outsider. And he garnered a Canadian Jewish Book Award, right? Uh, And later you were nominated for the Jordan Schnitzer Notable Selection Prize. You won the Jordan Schnitzer Uh, Notable? No, I I can't. I came in second. Okay, <laughs> yeah. good. That's pretty good. Um, and um, and you've published widely on Jewish thought from the Bible to Maimonides and Rav Cook. So I want to welcome you to New Books in Jewish Studies. Uh, and I want to open with the question about why Jewish theology now? That is, this work diverges from major work that you've done so far in Jewish studies, primarily in the realm of Maimonides. So what motivates you to take this turn towards Jewish theology? Right. So um, as you mentioned, uh, when you talked about, uh, when, you, when you named the books that I've uh, written, uh, heavily concentrated on uh, medieval Jewish thought, uh, specifically on Maimonides, um, and I realized uh, all the years that I've studied uh, Maimonides' medieval Jewish thought that really what I was doing, in a sense, and what those uh, great thinkers were doing was theology. Now, um, Maimonides, for instance, great uh, was both uh, the greatest jurist of his time, that is, a uh, uh, scholar of Jewish law, uh, introducing the first Jewish legal code, but he was also probably um, and penned probably the greatest uh, theological work, I would call it. It's not strictly philosophy. People call it a philosophical treatise, but the guide of the perplexed, 
that I think he considered maybe his crowning achievement uh, in terms of um, thought, Jewish thought, really concerned theology. Um, really, if we talk about theology as uh, talking about God, really, um, the nature of God, the nature of a human beings' relationship with God, that's what that book is all about, which is kind of his last work. Um, and I think he considered it his most important work since he considered it the most profound subject or disciplines within philosophy and Jewish thought. So, uh, so uh, you know, I, I never, you know, I, I thought of it that way, but it was always kind of a, um, you know, maybe more of an academic study. Uh, but of course, I was attracted to it because, uh, it, you know, theology is something that I maybe naturally am attracted to because of my background. Um, and then I started to seriously think about whether I truly agree. Now, I agree, agree with Maimonides' attempt um, at constructing a theology, but whether I agree with him um, in the substance of his theology. And in, in a great measure, this book came out of that, a kind of rethinking of a lot of the theological premises uh, about the nature of God um, that, that is part of Maimonides' legacy. Uh, which was a rationalist legacy, a very, very rationalist view um, of God um, and of the way human beings can perhaps access get that God or relate to God. And I realized it was, it, it was quite at odds uh, with the tradition that I had grown up with, the texts that I've grown up with, which includes biblical texts, uh, and of course for Judaism, maybe even uh, as important or perhaps even more important the way the rabbis read those texts or reread those texts, um, which is much more of a, of a relational God, uh, a God that one can consider more personality, uh, more of a personality um, versus the Maimonidean God, who is a kind of a, an unknowable, undescribable being that one can only know through through the intellect. And so I gravitated much more, though I, I was very much on board with the idea that what is important in Judaism is not just law, but theology, um, I started to rethink um, that whole Maimonidean theological construct of God um, and get more back maybe in tune with the biblical uh, the rabbinic, uh, and many, any other thinkers through the ages in, in Jewish thought and outside Jewish thought, um, as a God of relationship. So that's, a, that's a little bit of a, a background to why I wrote that book. Um, and if I can, um, you know, the need for it, uh, I think I explained it in the beginning is, is this real, uh, caricature, I think that, that, uh, started off with, I think early Christianity, the way it characterized um, um, and kind of binarized, if you want to say, Judaism as opposed to Christianity, with Judaism being the religion of law, kind of this severe uh, religion that demands only slavish obedience to law. And uh, Christianity is this kind of religion uh, of theology, of compassion, of, um, of ideas, um, and and so that that became a kind of a 
um, a binary construct because Christianity, of course, used it to play off it um, um, in terms of in terms of their theology. But um, it is, I think, a caricature, and it's something actually that we ourselves, many many of our thinkers, actually buy into. Um, and so, I, I, you know, to me, that's actually. I think it's ridiculous. <laughs> I think it's absurd to say that Judaism is simply a religion of law. I mean, certainly it is um, a religion that um, you know has a legal system or the halachic system. But I think it you know it has to be uh, grounded in some theology, or at least not a theology. Maybe that's where the difference is, but theologies, right. Can you say more about that, um, the difference between Jewish, uh, Christian theology, which I think tends towards the more systematic or comprehensive or consistent, and what you might call Jewish theologies with the, you know, the plural form? Right, right. So uh, I guess uh, the difference would be, uh, like you said, systematic theology. Judaism doesn't really have that, except I, I guess one could say, Maimonides tried to introduce some kind of systematic theology, especially with his introduction of uh, dogma or 13 principles of belief. Um, But the fact that Maimonides lived in the 13th century and you never had anything like that before the 13th century, it's quite late, tells you something about uh, you know, uh, about the fact that systematic theology was something that... uh, maybe Jew, Jew, Jews resisted or was never really considered, uh, you know, a, a, an essential constituent of Judaism. Um, and, and so uh, for Christianity, since they really, um, you know, abrogated the law, really, really uh, one of the central uh, divergences between Christianity and Judaism uh, really came when Paul said, uh, you know, this is a caricature also, but forget about the law. Right. Uh, let's move on. That really, I think, was the point that distinguished Christianity as a religion from Judaism. One could say, and their scholars have shown that Judaism and Christianity were really kind of feeding off each other, really not two different religions. But the minute you cut yourself off from the law, then I suppose that that could be the critical point um, of distinction between the two as religions. And then Christianity kind of filled that void. Uh, in quite a sophisticated way, um, with theology. Uh, that is, if if you know if you don't have this focus on law, um, you need to spend your time on something else, which I think is is very important. Um, but they became, I think, in a, in a sense, much more sophisticated at what you mentioned, uh, theology, systematic theology, than we did, and um, um, and 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 we you know, we can borrow from that too, or we can take that as a model. Um, but, but on the other hand, um, I would say that uh, all of Jewish law is grounded in some kind of idea um, of God, uh, some kind of idea of the nature of God. Um, after all, um, you know, for instance, Jewish law demands um, a blessing before anyone eats something. So when someone kind of voices that blessing, blessed are you, O God, who whatever, um, you know, uh, who created, uh, you know, the, the 
the resources for us to eat this this particular food. What one needs to have, and maybe this is a problem, maybe many people don't, but one needs to have some kind of notion of who you're addressing. Who is it when you're saying ata, blessed are you? What does it mean to say blessed? Why would God need our blessing? Um, why does it change from you, uh, kind of a more personal, to a third person, God, our God? What does it mean for God to have created this particular thing? What What does creation mean? I mean, it, it, just a simple thing like that raises a host of theological questions um, that to say it's just law and we just do it uh, seems to me, I would say, absurd. <laughs> So that's a Leibovitz, I'm thinking about Leibovitz, who emphasized a Judaism bereft of belief and only about obedience. And you you wrestle with him in a serious way. Straightforwardly, I think you argue against um, that that eviscerates Judaism in a profound way. Um, uh, So I want to ask I want to ask you about the title. Uh, the title, which is Jewish Theology Unbound. So here I think of the the Akedah, the Binding of Isaac. Are you in some way resonating with the Bible, the 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 Akedah, the Binding of Isaac, or 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 maybe dissonant with the Binding of Isaac? Tell me a little bit about your choice of title. So Rachel, that that's very interesting that you uh, we both are Jewish scholars, and when you when when you mentioned binding, right or unbinding, what immediately comes to our mind, I guess, uh, is the binding of Isaac story, and I think there is some truth into what in in what you're saying. That is, there is some link between that, but I I, I intended on raising um, you know a whole bunch of kind of associations. Uh, some people might think those who are familiar with Greek mythology, of course, and, and later versions of early Greek myths about Prometheus, um, right, Prometheus, and later kind of uh, versions which brought in Prometheus unbound. And Prometheus, of course, was the Greek um, god or demigods that uh, had this gift of fire, brought it down to in, in defiance of the gods and, and gave it as a gift to, to human beings. And so there's this idea of defiance of God, um, uh, gifting humanity with something that improved their lives. Um, and then uh, I'm kind of in the Greek myths, he was uh, bound up, shackled to a rock <laughs> and suffered in, you know, eternal torment because of that. Um, and so I, I think in very many ways it, it resonates with that as well. That is Judaism, um, in a sense, the rabbis, for instance, unbound um, the Bible from this commanding voice of God that demands blind obedience um, and took it upon themselves um, to take that gift of God's voice. I'm, I'm using loose associations here, but that gift of God's voice, which we know, hear no longer, um, and allowed us to tease out what we hear from that voice. That's kind of the rabbis, I, I think, the analogy between Prometheus um, and the fire, that is the rabbis maybe in a Promethean way uh, took the voice of God 
So you were saying, Jim, about how the rabbis, in a way, take over the role of Prometheus in unbinding the human, I'd say, in this case, the Jew, from uh, blind obedience to the law of the Bible. Um, so pick it up from there. Tell me, tell me what this rabbinic um, overlay uh, in, is about. Right. So, um, so it actually, the rabbis even take it further. And I think this is fairly unique to the Jewish tradition. Um, and I pick up a lot of the, uh, a lot on the book in the book on that theme is that not only uh, do the rabbis take kind of this gift, which is the voice of God, and then they really, in a sense, um, humanize that voice. Um, at the same time, we have this strong tradition um, in the rabbinic tradition of actually, and I think in the Bible as well, of where where human beings actually teach God something and that there is a kind of reciprocal um, relation, a mutually reciprocal relationship between human beings and God, uh, where God has this kind of theoretical abstract knowledge of humankind and what they need. And then through experience, uh, human beings kind of slowly teach God uh, what they need by refashioning, remolding um, that voice of God in its spirit, um, with it, with certain, of course, maybe constraints. I don't even know, you know, what the limits of those constraints are. Maybe that's another book. Um, and so, um, so we have kind of remarkable interpretations. Um, so for instance, uh, one of the, one of the, one of the, uh, midrashic, which is the rabbinic word for kind of, uh, this very creative, um, elastic way of reading uh, the biblical text, um, the tablet, the Ten Commandments, like the law was etched in stone or uh, engraved in stone. And, um, and that word is charut in Hebrew. And the rabbis read it as, um, uh, they actually say, don't read it that way, which is one could say, uh, sort of kind of just etched in stone, something that is permanent and unchangeable, uh, read it as charut, as cherut as freedom. And that, I think, is a very, very important uh, in, um, way of reading this verse, uh, which grounds maybe all of rabbinic law, all of uh, rabbinic uh, midrash, uh, the way they read into gaps in, um, in the biblical narratives and biblical law, um, which is the law is grounded in, it's not just etched in stone, which is dead letter law, one could say, uh, but that it, it's alive. And the only thing that, that uh, makes it alive is this human interpretation, the interpretation of God's law, the interpretation of God's word. Um, so it's freedom to interpret? Freedom to interpret within certain, I guess, constraints. I mean, the rabbis uh, built uh, kind of a system of various principles, what we call hermeneutical principles uh, or exegetical or interpretive principles, um, but there is a tremendous latitude, and like I said, that that allows the rabbis. The rabbis are very attuned to the text, perhaps the overall spirit of the text, and within that, there is this. Um, well, I guess what the, one of the reasons what, uh, uh, for the title of the book, which is Unbound, that I think is very unique to Judaism, 
and I don't think any other religion, especially Christianity, Islam, um, don't have this really uh, well-developed, very large volume. We're talking about the largest um, volume of ancient literature that we have, uh, which is the Talmud, uh, thousands of folios of this kind of, I think, unboundedness. So, um, so that's a little bit about the unbound in the title. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Can you, um, let's take it back to the binding of Isaac. Oh yeah. There's one really beautiful passage where you engage with the Pia Zetzner's interpretation of the consequences of the binding of Isaac. Um, that is, the Piazetzner is known as the Warsaw Ghetto Rabbi, Rabbi uh, Kalonimus Kalman Shapiro, 1889 to ni- 1943. And he gave a really powerful reading of Sarah, right? The matriarch Sarah's response to the binding. Maybe that plays into your title as well. Can you tell me what what does the Warsaw Ghetto Rabbi, the Piazetzner, say about that? Right. So uh, we're getting now into kind of the end of the book, and it just let me let me preface just introduce that because it's it, I think you're yeah. quite right to ask that now because I suppose the this unbounded unboundedness that I'm talking about reaches perhaps a climax um, mm. in um, a response to extreme suffering uh, and a response to the greatest, not perhaps, but the greatest catastrophe that has happened to, to Jews um, in civilization, uh, whatever, um, which was the, uh, the Holocaust or what we call the Shoah. Um, and so we have sermons of this uh, Hasidic Rebbe, this Hasidic master, um, that are uh, that he buried. Actually, he continued to give sermons in the Warsaw Ghetto from the time that, um, actually, from, from the time uh, that the Nazis uh, invaded Poland in 1939 to um, the summer of 1942, uh, before uh, the Great Deportations, when the Nazis finally decided to evacuate the ghetto and deport all the Jews to the various killing centers. Um, and so we have a great treasure. Uh, it's actually unique. I, I don't know of any other uh, um, really artifact, if you want to call it like this, where he actually recorded, um, transcribed them, um, edited them right up until the end before he was murdered in 1943. And the sermons actually um, are perhaps I would say the most authentic response to human suffering, to innocent suffering, to all the problems those raise, especially for uh, religious uh, people, for people who believe in God, uh, in this case, uh, Jews, uh, Jews, a Jewish uh, master uh, steeped in the rabbinic tradition, trying to understand from an existential point of view, somebody who is right there in the heart of things, um, trying to understand what's going on, waffling, um, you know, resorting to uh, old, maybe rabbinic uh, responses to suffering, old models, um, realizing at some point that those perhaps are not sufficient to respond to the gravity of the suffering. And so he starts off almost immediately with, a, with a, I would say, a very radical, perhaps, reading. I've never seen anything like this. 
um, of the binding of Isaac and particularly Sarah's role in it, um, which is often overlooked, particularly uh, uh, came into focus with feminist scholarship, marvelous feminist scholarship in the 70s, especially in 80s, continuing on to this day. And you, Rachel, of course, are uh, one of those who continues this tradition. And and I appreciate your sensitivity to the text very much. Um, And so he... Um, it, you know, talks about Sarah's role, and he plays on uh, the rabbinic tradition, you know, cited by um, the most famous commentator on uh, the Bible called Rashi, lived in the 11th century, who uh, reads the juxtaposition because Sarah's death is recorded in the narrative immediately after the binding of Isaac story. So, of course, as always, rabbis question, you know, the meaning of that. There is meaning to chronology and attribute her death to hearing about the news that her son was being taken out to die or to be killed by her husband, actually. And this causes her death. This causes her death. Um... The Pia Setzner Rebbe, this Hasidic Rebbe, actually reads it in a, in a very startling way. That is, he plays on that, and he actually says that Sarah intentionally gave up her life, intentionally gave up her life, which is very different than uh, the rabbinic reading, which was that caused her death, intentionally gave up her life to teach God something. That is, that uh, he also uh, builds on the rabbinic tradition that suffering, suffering somehow is redemptive, that some, suffering somehow plays a positive role in purging one's soul. Um, but he says there is a point where suffering becomes destructive, not constructive. And he compares it to kind of salting meat. That salt can preserve meat, but if you put too much salt on meat, it destroys it. And so, so the death of a child, right, who is uh, an innocent, uh, the suffering that that causes um, is too much. Is too much. That's kind of like the salt that destroys. That cannot be constructive. And Sarah actually, in a sense, commits suicide. Not in a sense. I actually take it that way. I think that's that's the only way we can read it. To teach God that this is too much. You may understand this from a kind of God, from an abstract uh, sitting up there. <laughs> but down here, that kind of suffering can only be destructive. And, and, he, and it's... Yeah, sorry. I understood that he wrote this very soon after he lost his son, his only son. That's right. So it, it right, it, 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 he doesn't, he doesn't mention it. He never, in fact, which is, which is fascinating also, he never uh, makes mention directly of the Nazis or, um, or things that are going on. We know that he's talking about starvation or talking about suffering. We know that, but, um, which, which, which really um, makes these sermons transcend their historical context. You know, historians, there's a lot of them, our colleagues, tend to reduce, um, you know, uh, thought to its historical context. And, and um, by doing this, by not talking about what happened to him just then, you're quite right. This, in fact, uh, his son died in the initial bombing of Poland by the Nazis. 
he's of course talking very much about himself and his own situation, but by not putting it into the context of his own situation, he also unbinds that story, unbinds it both substantively in the way he interprets it and unbinds it for us because he, he I think, intends this. The very fact that he buries the sermons and continues to transcribe them means that he leaves it for us to as a model for us, as perhaps a new model for us in how to respond to suffering. God forbid this ever happens to any of us. Um, but there's one more thing I just wanted to mention in that sermon, uh, which is quite um, perhaps radical, maybe uh, not radical for Hasidic theology, um, which is he attributes the very chronology, that is the very drafting of the Torah, to Moses. That is, uh, the Torah in theory was given to Moses, but Moses was kind of an editor. Um, and Moses, I call it scribal activism, that it was Moses that, that juxtaposed this story um, directly with the binding of Isaac. Um, so we, we would call the redactor. As that's the right, Bible that's critics, right. right. That's, that's right, the exactly. capital R. With the capital R. Uh, <laughs> the capital know, R, Rabbi. Rabbi. As, uh, uh, yeah. as, as the great philosopher Martin Buber, I think, called him Rabbein, yeah, and Rabbeinu. Yeah. And Rosenzweig, Franz Rosenzweig. So, so I, I think you're quite right to, to take us to the end of my book, um, because perhaps that, if you follow the trajectory of this unboundedness and this idea in the rabbinic tradition, that would really climax, I suppose, in this sermon, right? Um, um, and so, so uh, p- perhaps that's an excellent illustration of this idea of un- unboundedness. Yeah. So I'm going to take. So given that is what you would say as the apex of the book, I want to just fill in a few of the details. Sure. Um, with your, uh, you're going to fill it in. I'm going to prompt you. <laughs> okay. Um, so in chapter two, you take all the questions that humans ask and God asks. The quest you follow the questions in the Bible, and I think they're essentially theological questions, right? Um, and um, the first question is Ayeka. God asks of Adam, where are you in the garden after he's eaten of the forbidden fruit? And then the final question would be the question, perhaps Lamentations, Echa from Lamentations, how could you, of God, the human question of God, Echa, how could you destroy Jerusalem and banish your children into exile? Um, So what is the historical trajectory there? And is there a theological and an existential shift over time to the questions of the Bible, in the Bible? And is there a trajectory to the questions we are meant to ask of God? So that, that's, a, that's an excellent uh, question. Now, as far as historical trajectory, um, you know, I'm, I'm not a historian and I'm certainly not a, you know, a biblical scholar in that critical sense. It's not a I, chronological then, a right, chronological right. Let, trajectory. Let's, as, as you said, the redactor, the capital R, our master, uh, you know, those redactors that uh, edited the Bible and this chronology that was worked out, uh, that itself is a kind of a, 
you know, has meaning, obviously. Um, and I follow that trajectory of the final, what we call the Masoretic version uh, of the Bible. Uh, so it's not strictly speaking historical, um, you know, in, in, in what the biblical scholars would call it. Uh, but there is, I would say, um, not just theological, but there, uh, these questions would could be considered philosophical as well. Uh, but the minute you bring God into the picture and the relationship between God, you have ph- uh, theological. But I do see a a trajectory between, for instance, the first question, as you mentioned, uh, of Adam, um, where are you? Um, which uh, and Lamentations um, in my book is not the last question, but there's a link between the the way the rabbis read that question. And they draw the link between echa, meaning ayeka, in, in the case it's, it's, um, it's vowelized differently, um, but it's the same, it's the same characters. Uh, so maybe for your audience, uh, a tiny explanation of Hebrew, that is, uh, the elasticity of the Bible is more than just uh, the text itself, but it, it, it goes as far as the words themselves, because the words themselves can be read differently because uh, on, in print there are no vowels and vowels are inserted, you know, by you. Uh, we have kind of official, an officially vowelized text, but the rabbis consider them uh, this unboundedness to extend to the very vowels. And so the word ayeka, which is where are you, uh, can be vowelized to read echa, how, how is this possible, as you quite rightly pointed out, um, which is lamentations, <clears throat> um, which is what Jews call lamentations, which is how, <laughs> um, or why, or how, how is this possible, which deals with the destruction, with the catastrophic destruction of the temple, of the first temple. Um, and so I, I, I play on that link, which, which is, <clears throat> what you have just done and what the rabbis have, have done, what you've just done, Adam, is to somehow not just disobey law. Here we, here we get into this idea of just law, you know, God, you know, um, commanded Adam and just he was supposed to be obedient. But, but there's more to it that is in this, um, in this transgression of God's law. Adam somehow severed the link between uh, or damaged the link between uh, the relationship between God and human beings. And so that's what I think the rabbis are doing by drawing this association in this not just playful, but very serious way um, and taking those two words. That is, there is a um, inherent link between that book dealing with destruction and this, because it's commenting on what Adam just did. He damaged relationship. The relationship that um, the temple uh, was supposed to signify, which is the what we call the axis mundi, or the bridge between human beings and the world, that's what Adam did. And so um, there's a host of you associations. You mean the heavenly world. That's right, the heavenly world um, yeah. and the human world. Exactly. And so, and so, um, and, and, you know, and where are you also, where are you situate philosophically? What do you have to say for yourself, Adam? Have you thought, have you reflected about, you know, it's not, I mean, I guess, you know, some Bible scholars would read, yeah, you know, God just doesn't know where he is. Uh, he's hiding. Uh, you know, if that's what it is, I guess I could pack it up and <laughs> leave the text mm-hmm. behind a little bit. I think it's saying something much more profound. 
Um, we have this uh, in the English language as well. We don't have to take everything strictly, literally. Uh, but where are you in the world? Where are you situate existentially, philosophically? And and that's the first failure of mankind, I see, is, is the failure to reflect. I mean, Adam does mm-hmm. hide, and his answer is really more of hiding, right? It's not literal hiding, but it's, it's evasion, right? Oh, well, you know, the woman, you know, passing the buck, uh, that creation, that great gift that God gave you of another human being, which constitutes the beginning of relationship, right? That human beings can't live alone. Um, one of the essential constituents of their humanity is relationship. He immediately rejects that very thing, <laughs> That, he blames her. That's right. He blames her, and so it's it's more it's 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 actually more more serious than evasion. Uh, but it, it's 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 more of evasion. It's more of the hiding, and it's it's a refusal to reflect on uh, the consequences of what I just did, um, the reasons I did it, um, what it has done to relationship. If part of this theology is hinges on relationship between human beings and God. So that very first question is a very, very serious question. And those questions can continue in this kind of trajectory, if I can, um, um, I, I, if you want to ask me another question, but if I can continue with this uh, mm-hmm. questioning, uh, yeah. you know, the next question that God asks of a human being is to Cain, the, the next generation. And that question kind of extends that uh, first question, which is addressed to Adam alone or to a human being alone to reflect on his own situation. But there it's, where is your brother? Right? And so that is really a, a, a marvelous uh, way of developing the next question because um, logically, or from a philosophical point of view, from a theological point of view, you reflect on your own situation. And the next thing you do is you reflect on the other, right? Or, you know, what you have done with your with others, how you've impacted on others, how you've conducted your relationship with others. And that is really the one of the primal questions. And that's addressed to Cain. Of course, Cain um, has done the ultimate uh, damage to relationship, which is to kill and to murder, um, to eviscerate relationship altogether. And that's what God is asking. You know, he's asking him, reflect on what this um, this act has done. Where is your brother? That is not, again, where is he? The same thing, I guess, biblical scholars would say. I mean, I don't know where he is. You know, uh, you buried him. But actually, even the text cries out, if I could use that language. You know, the blood of your brother cries out to me, uh, meaning the blood of brotherhood. Uh, the damage that you've done in terms of relationship to others cries out to me, this is an offense. And I want you to think about that. I want you to reflect further. That that question builds on the previous question. Um, if you move to the next stage, uh, Rebecca, for instance, um, when she is suffering in pregnancy, um, uh, this question is evoked. By suffering, in Cain lama ze anochi? Why am I? I mean, this should for any philosopher who's familiar, uh, or even I'm sure in your audience familiar with, let's say, existentialism. You know the whole question um, of why do we exist, especially in in light of suffering. 
Um, if there is suffering, why are these existentialists like Camus, quite popular now considering the current pandemic because he wrote this book called The Plague? Um, but, you know, um, why not commit suicide, right? Which is really Rebecca's questioning question, I think, right? Uh, her suffering is so great uh, that she questions her whole existence. And so these questions... Um, really, really raise profound issues of theology, of philosophy, and all of them, in some sense, um, you know, probe uh, you know those questions that are mo- that are most important for human existence and spiritual existence um, and religious existence. Um, we can we can talk about this more because there's more questions. But uh, you know, if you want to, we yeah, can. I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna put Pat because I want to come back to the final question when sure. we look at again sure. at the okay the final question being the question that humanity addresses to God. Right. But I'm gonna come back to that. Um, what I want to look at is the centerpiece of the book, which is really what I would consider the question of love, right. love between human beings and love of God. Right. And you focus on the verb in Hebrew, ahav, alef, hey, bet, lehov. And um, it seems to me you draw out a tension between human to human love and love of God. Why is there a tension between human to human love, which often ends tragically, and love of God, which seems absolute? In some way, oh. right. So, uh, so I invite you to. yeah. Uh, thanks for focusing in on that chapter, which I guess you can call it. it does appear kind of at the center of the book, um, and the, the title of that chapter is "The Hell and Bliss of Biblical Love." And what uh, drove me uh, to that is, as you pointed out, it seems like whenever this this word in particular, and you're right, there are other there are other terms that connote some aspect that we would associate with love, but I, I focused on this particular term, uh, which is ahav. Um, it seems that almost in every single case, somehow uh, that's associated with things going awry, things going wrong, deterioration in in, in lives. Um, you know, uh, damaged human beings. Uh, and so that kind of w- provoked me to look at this again. Um, and, um, and what I did was to zero in on what I think the Bible might be afraid of, or might be pointing out about the dangers of human love, as opposed to the danger, uh, as opposed to love of God, and this may be counterintuitive or may counter to the way a lot of people um, have looked at it, um, but it's this danger of being so um, so loving of someone else um, that one can lose oneself. That is uh, perhaps an idolization of another human being, uh, being absorbed into that other uh, person's existence and losing your own. Um, and um, or ali- obliterating the other person's existence, um, or, or, or that, or that, I'm not uh, yeah, that's right, that's right, or that, absolutely. And that, of course, can happen, happen in human God relationships. It happens actually tragically, not tragically, uh, heinously, even as we speak, 
um, of people killing in the name of God. So love of God mm-hmm. also has, has that danger. Um, but but it, it, it is fascinating. So uh, if I can for a moment, the, the kind of maybe central text um, in that chapter, which would be, I think, the central text for anybody who's interested in love in the Bible, uh, which is the Song of Songs, uh, which is all about um, a love between two human beings and actually never mentions the name of God. Um, you know, if you found that text somewhere and you didn't know anything about it um, and you didn't know it was part of the Bible, you would never, ever imagine that this could be part of the Bible, um, a text that is very, you know, talks about this passionate, these passionate emotions between human beings, uh, with, but also about the elusiveness um, of that love. Uh, but it ends, it ends, I think, um, in a kind of a downer, but maybe one can read it with, uh, in this way of pointing out the danger of, uh, of love, which goes together with, with why perhaps all these other stories um, end in kind of disaster. Um, yeah, can I read is, the verses? Yeah, sure. Can I just read those two Absolutely. verses? Because I think your reading of those two verses was exquisite. Yeah. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. For love is strong as death, passion fierce as the grave. It flashes as flashes of fire, a raging flame. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If one offered for love all the wealth of his house, it would be utterly scorned. Right. So comment. Right. So so that is, by the way, the only kind of third party or maybe the author's comment, right? The rest of the text is, you know, descriptive of this relationship between the two. Uh, but this is kind of stepping outside the text and commenting, uh, you know, uh, generally on love. And it struck me that, um, you know, most people read these texts as how strong love is. It, it, you know, it's, it's strong as like death is inescapable. Uh, but, but if you read all these metaphors, they're kind of morbid metaphors in a way. Uh, death, jealousy, Sha'ol is this word for, um, in the Bible, for the netherworld, a kind of after death. Um, darts of fire um, themselves um, refer to or take off on Reshef, uh, which is the, these darts, um, a kind of god of the underworld. And it seemed to me that you could have picked better metaphors for durability like you have in the bible love is as strong as the cedars of lebanon let's say right which is this you know um idea of of endurance um survival and i thought it was actually a negative view all of them are uh, really one could say the obliteration of uh, a human being even the one of place me as a seal upon your heart um, is this idea that my love for you is so intense and seal is a, um, one could read it as, you know, I carry this around with me all the time. Like people maybe carry a photograph, uh, in a necklace perhaps around their neck, but a seal in the Bible is the signifying the identity of that person who 
whose whose seal it is. So if this is the person, the lover's seal, what I've done as a seal is to be basically assimilated into your very being. Um, death, all, all these things is kind of the end of human existence. And so I thought that that raised this danger of love being so intense that you lose yourself, uh, lose your identity. Um, so why would, why would love of God, and I'm going to provoke you a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> why would love of God, you're reading love of God sort of along with Eric from, right? Yeah. Uh, that it's healthy love of God is pre- pre- preservation of self, but what's to pre- what's to prevent the human being from losing their identity and love of God? Um, right. you know, why? Yeah. Right. So, that so for me. yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, my book, of course, is talking about ideals, talking about, you know, um, ideas, uh, theological ideas. So you're quite right. Uh, and as I said before, we see this danger of love of God, um, because, you know, getting to the point where you actually do literally obliterate other people's lives. However, the way I read it, uh, you know, uh, for God, uh, you have this idea of love your God with all your soul, with all your heart, with all with all your might, uh, which is part of the daily, uh, you know, a central prayer for Jews, the Shema prayer. What I argue in the chapter um, is in fact, what that does, and the other few places where it mentions that, um, which is love, love the uh, you know love the where there's a command to love, uh, for instance, love the the stranger, the one who is other, the foreigner in your midst, um, because you yourself were a stranger, you yourself experienced um, a, a, a kind of a an otherness in society where you were a foreigner and you were subjected to oppression in Egypt. Um, So where the way I read that with all your heart, with all your might, with all your soul means that one has to actually get a hold of oneself. That is one has to know one's soul. One has to be completely in tune with oneself in order to express that love. Um, For instance, uh, so that's, that's the way I read that the way I read. It's very different from Rabbi Akiva. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Very, very, very different reading. It's a right. very modern reading of right. that uh, command to love. Right. Light. Right. And you're you're absolutely right. Uh, but a- at the end of the day, Rabbi Kiva, of course, is the one that gives up his own life. But he's also the one who says you can boil down the entire Torah to this one principle, right? of loving your neighbor, if you want to call it that. I, there is another way of reading this um, as yourself, loving the other as yourself, um, which again is this idea that, you know, if, if you take this to heart, to soul and to might, I guess, um, and, and understand your own identity, then you can express this love properly and you uh, will not fall into this danger of losing yourself. So for instance, with the, with the foreigner or the other, you yourself have experienced, you meaning Israel, or you're, in your historical experience, you yourself have experienced this way, this treatment of others, which is non-relational. This is the, the, the treatment that, of others that, that is, is slavery, right? Which is totally non-relational because you, you, you just treat the other completely as a commodity, 
as an object. It's not possible to have a relationship with an object or a commodity. That's totally for you. But since you have experienced this, you know in your own identity what that is, and therefore you will know how to express the proper relationship with this other, with this other, right? You know the limits of, the, of that love. So as you say, of course, there is that danger, and I'm sure people will take me to task on this. Um, but that's the way I read it. That's the way I read it. The, re- the, the reading actually sets the limits of, those lo- uh, of that love by understanding your own identity and therefore be attuned to the other's identity and being Beautiful. attuned to God as a person, to God as a person. Beautiful, beautiful. Yeah. Uh, who wrote The Personhood of God? Uh, the theologian? Uh, um, Heschel. You're talking about no, Heschel? The Personhood oh. of God. Uh, uh, you know what? I, I'm, I'm tuning out now to you, right? <laughs> but anyway. No, it's not Heschel. But uh, you know who I'm talking uh, I think it's... Muffs. Jochen and Muffs. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. So I thought yeah. God is a personality. God yeah. is becoming, and you do That's a beautiful right. analysis right. on right. A.E.S. Right. Yeah. God is in relationship. God is attuning to the human and the human attuning to God. It's really a beautiful and a very radically modern reading. Um, So I want to turn now. We we have about 10 more minutes and there are two big questions I want to ask you. Um, So the other question I have is the cover about the cover of your book. So on the book cover of your book, and I hope hopefully when we post this podcast, uh, people can look it up and see the beautiful painting. It's the 1920 painting by Paul Clay of Angelus Novus. Now, um, Walter Benjamin, in a very famous essay, talked about this painting as a, in terms of amusing on the angel of history on a retrospective view of history. Now we haven't talked about history. We've talked a lot about uh, God and the Bible and rabbinic interpretation, but I'm wondering whether you had that in mind. Did you, did you choose the painting? Or, and, yes, and, I did. Yeah. And whether you had something in mind um, yeah. in choosing this, this painting. Right. So two things. One is, um, I mean, both reasons are why I chose it, but I have this um, habit of every one of my books, even the books that dealt with Maimonides, since the you know the Holocaust actually looms very large in my thought. Um, everyone has some photograph, some illustration, uh, some visual representation that uh, is associated with that with the Holocaust, um, and so so. Uh, that's what drew me to this. Uh, Paul Klee's painting actually was part of what the Nazis uh, mounted an exhibit called Degenerate Art, uh, the art that they um, that really uh, posed a threat to everything they believed in. This kind of freedom, um, abstract, uh, non-realist, let's say, art. I mean, I'm not an art historian. That's why they like the Greeks so much, this kind of the body, the perfect bodies, the f- physicality of it. Uh, they hated kind of Paul Klee. So, so I loved it, right? Uh, so th- there's that reason. However, there's also a substantive reason. Um, and, uh, actually, there's three reasons. Is It's very provenance. Um, 
Uh, Paul Klee wrote it. Of course, that was put into that degenerate art uh, and whatever the Nazis thought was degenerate, I think is <laughs> one of the great contributions to human civilization, uh, the opposite of degenerate. But the provenance of it um, really kind of captures um, a lot of the trajectory of human of, of Jewish existence in the last uh, you know, 75, 80 years. Uh, Walter Benjamin um, got this from Paul Klee. As you say, it became a very central painting for him. Walter Benjamin, uh, some of your audience might know, uh, you certainly know this, committed suicide rather than be captured by the Nazis in 1940. He left it to another great philosopher, Theodore Adorno, uh, who himself um, addressed the Holocaust, was traumatized. His own life was traumatized by the Holocaust. Another Jewish thinker, uh, famous for the assertion that to write poetry after Auschwitz is barbaric. He himself left it to the other great perhaps one of the greatest um, scholars of the last generation uh, of Jewish studies, uh, of Kabbalah, Gershom Sholem. Uh, and Gar- Gershom Sholem ultimately bequeathed it, um, after he died, to the Israel Museum. So it hangs now in uh, a museum that's central to the vibrant life uh, that goes on in the new Jewish homeland in Israel, um, a center of culture, a center of spirituality, which is the Israel Museum. And so I thought that just the way the the trajectory of this painting from person to person just captures the transition from uh, death, Holocaust, to a future life. I don't by any means mean ever to uh, uh, you know, draw some justification of the Holocaust by Israel, but it the, these are things that happened, um, and so Israel uh, symbolizes a future um, of life for Jews, and so so just that. But the very meaning of the painting, um, the angel that Benjamin <clears throat> uh, wrote about, uh, as you uh, you know astutely pointed out. Um, is an angel that that kind of builds on the ruins of the past. Uh, there's a storm blowing from paradise. The storm, if I could just read his um, <clears throat> interpretation yeah, read the of the storm, yeah. um, it, it, it catches his wings. <clears throat> uh, the angel can no longer uh, close them, so it, the wings are damaged. The storm irresistibly propels him to the future. Uh, to which his back is turned while the pile of debris before him grows skyward. The storm is what we call progress. Uh, you know, this seems a very dark view. Um, um, the, the, as, I, as I interpret it, and of course this is subject to all kinds of interpretations, it has been, um, uh, you know, the debris that has accumulated in the past um, and this is very tied to, I have a chapter on angels. Unfortunately, we won't be able to get into that. But uh, briefly, th- those angels, and whenever there is some encounter with an angel, I argue that those angels um, kind of open people's perception to something that goes back to God's view of the entire world. Because human view of the world is always partial. It can never be complete. Because we're always kind of, you know, from our own uh, it's from our own perspective, from our own context, uh, whereas God's view of the world, which, um, which evokes the assessment that the world is very good, is a view of entirety of existence. And somehow angels give human beings a peek into what God saw when he saw the whole. 
when he saw all the parts and the way all the parts interacted, interconnected. And that's the way I read this angel, that somehow this angel um, is impeded because the angel is damaged. Perhaps it points its way back to my argument where the angel um, presents an undamaged view um, of the world, um, which leads us, perhaps can lead us to an understanding of the world in all its connected parts as being very good. And which itself, in, my, in that chapter, usually those encounters involve the way one human being has related to another human being. And that angel teaches that person to somehow perfect. There was some problem with that relationship, some problem with not recognizing the other as another human being, and therefore the angelic encounter teaches us that. And so that's what I, what, you know, led me to this kind of, to end really, the end, the book really ends with this, um, this idea of where that angel could perhaps move on, even though its wings are damaged. Beautiful. Okay. I mean, I had another really big question, but I think we're running out of time. I mean, no I wanted problem. to ask you about theodicy. I wanted oh, yeah. to ask you whether you were a post-Holocaust theologian. So we'll have to give a postscript and we'll have to have a follow-up conversation about this. Absolutely. Um, I'm always happy, wanted, Rachel. Thank you very much. For really, that. I want to ask you one last question, and that is, what are you working on next? So I'm actually uh, trying to work uh, on part two. <laughs> Part two of this which takes takes on uh, different types of questions um, that go back also to the Bible. So, um, for instance, what I'm working on now uh, is prophecy, um, mm-hmm. which really was the main channel between God and human beings uh, in the Bible. Human beings or at least as a community, aren't usually privy to what's going on up there. Um, and so this whole idea uh, of prophecy and how you distinguish particularly what, not just prophecy in general, but how does a community distinguish between a false prophet and, a, and an authentic prophet? Because there are those, um, you know, p- there are those episodes in the Bible that have false prophets who I think maybe think they're, they're speaking in the name of God. Uh, maybe they're self-deceptive. Maybe, you know, it's kind of self-deception. But how is the community, the leaders, supposed to decide between the two? And what makes an authentic communication? What makes a communication between God and human beings authentic? So that's what I'm working on now. Fabulous. A, you know, I think you and I are going to have to collaborate on something. Yeah. That would be great, it's Rachel. It's uh, uh, be- so wonderful to have this conversation with you. And um, I really appreciate your time in, um, you know, in being able to engage with this book for new books in Jewish studies. Thank you very much, Rachel. Thank you so much.